Welcome to Trauma Talk. We'll be discussing how to identify venomous snakes, avoid them, and what to do with bitten with Dr. Etling from the Cedric County Zoo. And we'll be discussing with Kathy Hall, our pharmacist from Wesley Trauma Services, how anti-venom works, the difference between the two on the market, when to use it, and any complications that may arise. So we'll get right to it. Dr. Etling, would you please introduce yourself? My name is Dr. Jeff Etling. I'm the uh, president and CEO of the Cedric County Zoo. Thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to be on the show. Happy to, happy to do it. You know, I'm a, I, People always uh, ask me, why of all animals did you end up you know, focusing on snakes in particular? And I said, one, I always thought they were fascinating from the time I was a child, but the more I learned about them, I realized that I needed to be a cheerleader for the misunderstood, you know. And so it isn't that I don't like tigers and other thing, other animals. It just felt that they've, I've always had an attraction to this very un- misunderstood animal. You know, they have no legs. They can eat things three or four times the size of their head. You know, it's just they're fascinating organisms. And, I, you know, I don't expect people to have the same level of fascination with them as I do, but at least leave them be and realize they're a valuable part of our ecosystem. That's the big thing. Thank you for being here and sharing your expertise on snakes. How many different types of poisonous snakes do we have here in Kansas? So in the state of Kansas, we have about 42 species of snakes that occur statewide, and only six of those are are venomous. Um, Years ago, I would have said five, but due to some taxonomic changes, we now have two species of copperhead that are actually recognized uh, in the state, we have the eastern copperhead and the broad-banded copperhead. Their close cousin, the cottonmouth, occurs here in the very southeast corner of the state. There's only two known records on the Spring River, so it's not an, a common species here. Uh, we also have the timber rattlesnake. Four species that I've just mentioned are all kind of in the eastern portion of the state. So we've kind of got east, meat, and west. In the western uh, half of the state, we have the western, or what used to be called the prairie rattlesnake, and then about two-thirds of the, of the state from the eastern state line going towards the west, we have the prairie or western massasauga, uh, which is fairly common around the Cedric County area. It's not found in you know the Wichita region proper, but you can find it. You can just literally drive on either direction, and they're uh, quite common, uh, probably one of the more common uh, snakes here in Kansas. There are um, isolated records for the western diamondback rattlesnake, and it historically has not been considered to be an indigenous species. Some of those may have been introduced you know, by purposeful releases into parts of the state, but there's a recent one just within the last month or so from in this, the Red Hills area that's not on the border with Oklahoma. So that you know, it may be it may be that we we have some in the southern tier area that will probably take some more investigation. But we don't currently consider it uh, a species that has breeding populations in the state. But those other six species are, are the ones that are the ones that we need to be looking out for. How do we tell if a snake is poisonous? Well, and, and one of the things I'll, I'll point out, we like to call these venomous rather than poisonous because the venom is injected in poison like a poison frog from something. You absorb it through the skin. If you look at a lot of the older books, and I have some of them, they would say the poisonous snakes of North America. So they get used interchangeably, but venomous really is the, the proper term for it just because they have hypodermic fangs that they inject venom with. So is there any way to tell if a snake is venomous just by looking at it? There are some features to look for 
All of our venomous snakes in Kansas are what we call pit vipers. They have two infrared pits that are located about halfway between their nostril and their eyes that they use. You know, these be called heat sensing pits, but they're more infrared, kind of like an infrared radar, you know, gun where you can see all the body heat of a small mouse. That's so they can literally hone in on prey items. But even from a reasonable distance out of striking range, you can typically see those those pits. All of our venomous snakes also have elliptical pupils, like a cat, vertical up and down pupils. All of our non-venomous species have round pupils. Even at a distance, you know, everybody said, well, I'm not getting that close to see that. But you could typically, with a snake laying on the ground several feet away from you, which is out of striking distance, you can typically see a round pupil versus a vertical. The brighter the light, the thinner that pupil's going to be vertical. Obviously, with the three rattlesnake species we have, they have the telltale rattle. I mean, if you look at, you know, if a rat snake is buzzing his tail in the grass, it's, it's going to sound at first glance like it, it's, a, it's a rattle. But if you look at the tail, you're not going to see those interlocking rattles. What else would be useful to know in recognizing a venomous snake? If you're going to be in areas where some of these species may occur is just learn to what their patterns look like. You know, there's a little field guide that's out that you can pick up from um, some of the local. In fact, I have one. There's a little pocket guide you can pick up from the nature centers that have all the common species in the state in there, and you'll be able to learn how to identify them. Yes, you can actually find that online. It's called A Pocket Guide to Kansas Snakes, and I'll make sure to put a link on our landing page, which is Wesley Trauma Talks dot podbean.com and you can find the link to that book there it's a free download so does a snake always inject venom with every bite the data shows that a minimum of 25 percent of the bites in humans are dry what we call dry bites means you know they they hit the person with their fangs but they didn't inject any venom and some even more recent data showing that might be as high as 50 percent and part of the logic behind that is that venom is a valuable commodity for the snakes, they don't want to waste it on something they can't eat. Being you know, pit vipers that have these infrared sensors, you can imagine the heat image they get from a human. They're like, well, you know, I'm not going to eat that. You know, uh, it's too large. You know, if, if someone continues to press a snake like that, they are going to, they're going to retaliate. It's like, it's like us. If you back one of us into a corner, we're going to defend ourselves eventually. And that's typically what happens with snake bite here in this country and across the world. We have what we like to call legitimate bites and illegitimate bites. And a, a lot of the legitimate bites are probably in that dry bite category. Somebody walking, they didn't see the snake on the ground, stepped on it, probably startled the snake as much as it startled them. It popped them, and it ended up being a dry bite. Then we have the illegitimate bites, I like to call them, that are typically on the hand and the arm, and that means somebody was trying to catch them or kill them. And those are a lot of the times the ones that end up having venom injected because someone's already been harassing the animal to a point where it's like, okay, gloves are coming off, as I like to say. And a lot of times those are males between 19 and 40 years old. The data shows that too. You know, It's rare that females are involved in that kind of sector of of bites and alcohol is often involved too so you've got a combination of testosterone and alcohol uh, which the two combined are not a good mix you know like hey watch this you know kind of thing but i think the reality is that these snakes don't want anything to do with us i mean snakes in general you know they're very passive animals if you give them their space just observe them they're gonna they're gonna go their own way but for the reasons i just described if you're if you're going to decide to try to catch it or kill it, then it's going gonna, it's gonna to defend itself. But uh, the venomous snakes are just as afraid of you as you probably are, probably more so afraid of you than you are of them. 
So do healthcare providers need to see the snake or even have the snake to know what kind of treatment to give the patient? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, there's this misconception that you need to bring the snake in with you, um, and you really don't need to do that. I mean, the bite pattern is going to be pretty evident on on the person's arm or leg, wherever they were, they're bitten, you know. With a non-venomous species, you're going to get a lot of small punctures from the multitude of teeth they have in their mouth. Now, the venomous species also have other teeth. The fangs are modified, but the way that those come out of the front of their mouth, like a pair of swords, those are the only two that are probably going to have contact with you. Now, there could be the possibility that there's a third small puncture because there's always replacement fangs that are coming in behind the the ones that are currently in use because it's like using any needle after several uses, you know, becomes dull. So those will fall out, and we find them here at the zoo, for example. We'll find them in the fecal of the snake. You know, you'll see, you know, they just pass and go through the digestive system with the prey item. So, you know, you may see... If someone that's been bitten, you may see one, you know, fang puncture on the left side, and there could be two that are real close together on the on the right side because there's a new fang that's starting to develop, you know. So that, but you're only going to see those, you know, couple uh, punctures. You're not going to see a multitude of small ones like the snake grabbed you with its whole mouth. So that makes it pretty pretty obvious. The other things that are are pretty evident with our pit vipers here is you're going to get a lot of swelling right away, a lot of pain. Uh, you're going to get ecchymosis that will set in. Sometimes that takes a little while. So it's it been described to me as sticking your finger in a light socket, just really intense pain. So I think you're going to know pretty quickly with that, you're going to start to see the swelling occur at the at the bite site. And that ought to be evidence enough what was happening without even bringing the snake with you. So leave the snake where it's at. So what should a person do if they're bitten by a snake? Yeah, you know, there's there's been a lot of different things, at least during my career, that have been... Uh, touted as what you need to do uh, for snake bite. But I think today your car keys are probably your most most valuable uh, first aid is that I know it's easy to say remain calm, but that's really what you need to do. You don't want to really expedite the flow of, you know, of the venom. In case you did actually get envenomated, you don't want to expedite that. You, If you have any jewelry on, you want to take that off, you know, um, keep the affected limb because that's typically where it's at in a kind of a resting fashion don't put any ice on the 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 bite at all no heat don't use any of the suction uh, kits that are out there they've recently demonstrated that they may do more damage than good and then have somebody get you to a hospital i mean it's rare for someone to be bitten and automatically have a reaction if if that was the case there probably wasn't anything you were going to do anyway but that's i would say it's very very rare that you have time. We're within reasonable distance of hospitals in this part of the country is have someone get you to a hospital as fast as they can. Don't take the snake. Leave the snake right where it was and uh, just remain as calm as possible. And anything that's constricting on your body, I would take that off. Dr. Etling, thanks for taking the time to share your expertise and passion with us on snakes. The Sedgwick County Zoo is an AZA accredited wildlife park and major attraction in Wichita. We're very lucky to have it here. It has over 3,000 animals of nearly 400 species, and this year is its 50th birthday. For being on the show, Dr. Etling. Now we're going to switch gears and talk with Kathy Hall, one of our excellent pharmacists from Wesley Medical Center, about the treatment of snake bites that goes on in the hospital setting. Kathy, what's your title at Wesley? I'm the surgical slash trauma ICU pharmacist here at Wesley Medical Center. Where did you go to school, and how long have you been here at Wesley? Uh, Ten years. I graduated from Drake University back in 2011, and then I did my PGY-1 and PGY-2 pharmacy residencies here at Wesley. 
So I've been practicing on my own for the past eight years, but I have two years of residency at Wesley. How does anti-venom work when administered to the patient? Sure. So it works to bind and neutralize the venom in the body and then helps facilitate the elimination from the body. There are two major anti-venoms on the market. What one does Wesley carry? Wesley currently carries Crofab. Um, we did actually look at switching to Anavip um, not too long ago, but the main dif- decision factor there was that Crofab is technically FDA approved for one year and above, where Anavip is for two years and above. So given our pediatric patient population, we elected to stick with the Crofab for now. Are there any other differences between the two? Crofab is supposedly better tolerated. The only noted adverse drug reaction there is just some kind of itching, whereas Anavip can cause some rash, blistering, nausea, vomiting, some myalgias, um, and headaches. So a little bit not as well tolerated from the manufacturer. I can't speak to the clinical side of it because we haven't used Anavip here. The other maybe supposed benefit of Anavit is is that it has a longer half-life. Its half-life is about 133 hours, where Crofab is around 24 hours. So Anavit's manufacturing will claim that they have a longer half-life that prevents those delayed coagulopathies, and you don't need as much redosing as you do with Crofab. So that's the other kind of benefit maybe from an Anavit standpoint. And this is a question I've been asked a lot. Why does antivenom cost so much to produce? For a while, Crofab was actually the only antivenom on the market. It got approved in 2000, and then as of 2015 is when Anavip hit the market. So we got a little bit of competition there, kind of trying to drive the prices down. They are still both very expensive, largely due because of the way they are made. One is derived from sheep plasma. The other is derived from horse plasma. So it's a little bit more cumbersome in the manufacturing of the drug. So it just keeps it at a hefty price tag. Crofab is derived from sheep and then Anavip is derived from horse plasma. So what are the indications for anti-venom administration? As of this past April, actually, they Crofab and Anavip actually both have the same indication, so they are approved for the envenomation of North American pit vipers, so your rattlesnakes, copperheads, cottonmouth, and water moccasin snakes. So we know not everyone who is bitten by a snake receives enough venom to need antivenom. Is there a scale or an assessment you use to decide who needs antivenom and how much? Yes, so the snake bite severity score we adopted into practice maybe about five years ago. It's a little bit more objective measure of the severity of the snake bite. The score ranges anywhere from 0 to 20, with um, 0 to 3 being minimal envenomation, 4 to 7 being moderate, and then 8 to 20 being severe. We actually, for patients that present to us, the score looks at pulmonary, cardiovascular, local wound, gastrointestinal, hematologic, and central nervous system symptoms. So, for example, um, if I was looking at the local wound and there was no signs and symptoms of a a wound, that would give the patient a score of zero. However, if there was pain and swelling involving up to half or all of the extremity, um, about 50 to 100 centimeters from the bite, it would give you a score of three. So right there, you're already kind of in that minimal in minimal but you haven't assessed anything else so it kind of helps us especially when we go from one provider to the next we have an objective measure as opposed to one provider saying oh it looks good the next one oh this looks bad because we don't have sometimes the same person on day to day so based on that if uh, we assess the patients they come in and they fall into that minimal zero to three score we actually 
will not administer an, any antivenom. We will just kind of watch and wait and observe the patient and the wound until, and then see, kind of reassess the score. And then if they progress into that moderate or severe category, then that's where we will give our CROFAB. So we typically start out with that moderate category with the four vials of CROFAB, um, because you can give anywhere from four to six vials for the initial dose. And then if they progress, if they present with a severe, then we start with the six vials. And if we repeat the score and it remains elevated, that's when we transition to the maintenance dose of the CROFAB, which is the four vials. How often do you reassess a patient with a snake bite severity score? So your goal is to try and do it at least every hour, especially if they're progressing, so you can assess whether you need to give additional doses. Once they're stable and their labs look stable, you can probably back down um, on your frequency pending your clinical judgment. The other thing I should note, if at ever, we use the snake bite severity score as a guide, but if at ever some point a provider feels that the wound's just looking bad, it's progressing too quickly, we nix that severity score and we just go straight to giving a dose of CROFAB because we're treating the patient. Are there any contraindications with the current antivenoms on the market? For CROFAB, it does carry one specific contraindication to papaya allergies, and Anavip has no contraindications. Neither agent has any studies in pregnant patients, so it's not a true contraindication. There is no evidence to support its use either way. Are there any considerations or even contraindications to a patient receiving both types of antivenom? We would honestly probably look at the dose of uh, Anavip that was given. Um, There was one study that relatively found that one vial of CROFAB is equivalent to two vials of Anavip, so we'd make sure that the dose was equivalent to what our initial CROFAB dose would be, and if not, we could give additional CROFAB to equate that dose. What is the adult dose and pediatric dose of CROFAB? So the unique thing about CROFAB, it is the same dose whether you're one year old or whether you're 90 years old because you're, us- you're using the drug to neutralize the venom. So the venom's going to be the same in the patient regardless of their age. So you need the same amount of drug. Looking at our snake bite severity score, if they fall in the 0 to 3 range, we actually ab- observe the patient and we do not give any CROFAB. And then if they progress to that 4 to 7 range, which we consider moderate envenomation, we'll give that first dose of four vials of CROFAB. If the patient does not respond, um, so when we, if we repeat our snake severity score, if it hasn't decreased or if it's going up, then we'll give an initial, another four vials, and then we will start the maintenance dose of the two vials um, every six hours times three doses. Um, however, if they prevent with severe envenomation with a snake bite severity score greater than seven, then we will do an initial six vials. Follow them by checking snake bite severity score, and if they need another dose, we'll give four vials and then the maintenance dose thereafter. Are there any lab values hospitals should monitor during and after the administration of antivenom? Yes, so probably the biggest concern with snake bite is the delayed um, coagulopathies that you can see. So typically we'll do a CBC, PTINR, PTT, and fibrinogen. Um, We usually do them every six hours for about the first 24 hours, and then after that we'll space them out depending on how the patient is doing and what their snake bite severity score is. Are there any other treatments that you'd recommend a patient receive who is suffering from a venomous snake bite? Um, just pain control would probably be the other thing. So whether you use opioids, um, we probably steer away from um, ibuprofen just because of the risk of coagulopathy. So we'll throw on some Tylenol or 
acetaminophen um, to kind of do a multimodal approach. Kathy, thanks for being on the show and sharing your insight into antivenom. If our listeners have any questions for Kathy, you can email me at aaron.sutton at wesleymc.com. That's aaron.sutton at wesleymc.com. You can also find learning objectives, copy of the Snakebite Severity Scorecard, and a link to the book, A Pocket Guide to Kansas Snakes, which is a free download at our loading page, which is wesleytraumatalk.podbean.com. And you'll find that over in the link section on the left-hand side of the page. Thank you for listening, and we'll catch you next Even Tuesday on Wesley Trauma Talk.